Welcome to CNS Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Jim Vredenberg to review recent major clinical and translational research data sets, and he began by reviewing two key issues in newly diagnosed patients with GBM, the use of MGMT status to determine prognosis and the use of frontline therapy with temozolomide and radiation therapy. Let me take the MGMT status first. It's clear that those patients that have an unmethylated promoter of MGMT have a worse prognosis. So those patients with a methylated promoter live longer, have a longer time to progression. The problem is we don't have any mediators of resistance that can reverse an unmethylated promoter. So it's very good research data, but it really is not used in day-to-day clinical practice. I think the most important bit of information that came was the five-year follow-up from the initial EORTC and NCIC, the STOOP trial, in which at five years, those patients with both a methylated and an unmethylated promoter seem to have benefited from the addition of temozolomide. Of course, the patients with a methylated promoter benefited much more. You mentioned the maturation of the stoop data. Anything else you want to say about that or any other data that's come out of upfront therapy? No, I think that the evolution of upfront trials is critical because it's clear in GBM, a effective therapy is going to be more effective when you use it in newly diagnosed patients. There's been a series of trials done with different agents being added to the backbone of temozolomide and radiation therapy, followed by temozolomide and the investigational agent. It's interesting that over the last five years, it seems the prognosis for patients with newly diagnosed GBM has improved because all those trials, the median overall survival is in the 18-month range compared to the stoop, is in the 15-month range. I don't think any of those trials have clearly stood out as a significant leap forward for patients with newly diagnosed GBM. I think it's much more that we've learned to take care of these patients better. Perhaps it's patient selection for the clinical trials. I'm sure you see a lot of patients in referral who previously have gotten upfront therapy, including radiation and temozolomide. Any I don't know, I'm not going to say errors or mistakes, but any things you see people doing in practice or not doing in practice in terms of upfront therapy that you think maybe could be improved on? I think that's a really important question, Neil. The most important thing is the whole issue of pseudoprogression. Following daily temozolomide and radiation, it's common for the MRIs to worsen. The patient is sent to a referring brain tumor center with clear tumor progression, and you go in and see the patient, the patient's tapered off their decadron, they've returned to work. Yes, the MRI is ugly, but that's obvious pseudoprogression. So I think that there's been new radiologic assessment criteria that have been developed called RANO, Response Assessment in Neuro-Oncology. And what the RANO criteria recommend is to wait at least 12 weeks from the end of radiation before deeming a person clear progression to temozolomide.
Now, if they're clinically worse and they're requiring more Decadron, well, then it is much more likely to be tumor progression. So I think that's really the biggest issue that needs to be sorted out in the community is this whole issue of pseudoprogression. Yeah, I remember the think tank. We had some cases that that happened. It's really amazing when you think about the implications of, you know, not being aware of that particularly when there really are no other effective agents for GBM. So, yeah, no, that really is critical. It's nice to be able to be a clinician again, you know, and take care of patients. What do we know about temozolomide in brain mets? We had a case at one of our case presentation sessions where one of the docs in practice utilized it, and I was like, hmm, I didn't know that. Is there any data on There is some data on that, right? Absolutely. There was a study from Greece, a randomized study of whole brain radiation therapy with or without temozolomide. It was in non-small cell lung cancer, but the addition of temozolomide clearly improve the time to progression of the brain metastases. So I think it's an area for future study. I don't think it should be routine, but it's one of the few drugs that actually gets into the brain. So it makes sense to use it. Any situations where you might think more about using an outsider protocol setting? Well, I think one of the biggest dilemmas in medical oncology is what do you do with a patient with brain metastases that have progressed following whole brain radiation therapy? And if it's one or two lesions, that's great. You can take them to the OR, you can do stereotactic radiosurgery, but it's infrequent to be one or two lesions. Well, how do you treat those patients, particularly when their systemic disease burden is low, their quality of life is pretty good? So absolutely, I've recommended temozolomide in a number of situations, particularly patients with melanoma, since it has a little bit of activity in melanoma, and melanoma has a terrible propensity to cause brain metastases. But now you're talking about using it without radiation therapy. The situation I was referring to was a patient had brain metastases, was treated with whole brain radiation therapy, and then progressed. It's a real tough situation. Obviously, lapatinib is efficacious in those patients with HER2 new positive breast cancer who develop brain metastases. But for all the other patients, there really aren't that many active agents. I've been encouraging them to study Abraxane or Doxel, some of the lipid-soluble agents. But temozolomide is a very reasonable option in those patients. What I was clarifying is, now the Greek study, was that in patients who were not getting radiation therapy? I think you said it was with radiation therapy. So we have data with radiation therapy, but you're saying maybe consider it without radiation if somebody can't get any more radiation. Absolutely. The Greek study was done in patients with non-small cell lung cancer at their initial presentation of brain metastases. What's interesting, it was a relatively small study, and that has not really become standard of care, even though the data was pretty good. So I think most physicians are more predisposed to consolidating them with stereotactic radiosurgery. But I think it's an area of investigation that needs to be followed. But just to clarify, you're talking about the possibility of using it in practice either with radiation therapy or without? I think that temozolomide for patients with brain metastases has potential activity both in combination with radiation therapy or in that desperate situation where a patient has already had whole brain radiation therapy and then progresses where there really is nothing that may be efficacious. That's where temozolomide can really slow things down.
I guess maybe another thing would be to look at the underlying disease. Is it mainly brain myths? Is it a disease that's known to be very rapidly progressive or more indolent? I guess you could think about that stuff. Well, I think that's important as well. Temozolomide really doesn't have any efficacy against breast cancer. But when you treat patients with breast cancer and brain metastases, it actually has produced some responses and control of the brain mets for a while. Well, why is that? Because you get such good concentrations in the brain. Also, in terms of the issue of upfront therapy, just to, again, touch base in terms of anything that's happened in the last year, one of the things we talked about at the think tank last summer was the gliadel wafer. Anything new in terms of utilization of that, and to what extent is it being utilized? In the community, the gliadel wafers are being used relatively commonly. In the randomized trial, it did improve survival by two months. There's been two papers published that you can safely add the gliadel wafers and then follow it with daily temozolomide and radiation and then temozolomide. So I think it certainly is a reasonable addition. The way I look at it is we really need all the help we can get with these patients, and I think the gliadel wafers should be investigated in combination with bevacizumab and some of our other VEGF inhibitors for newly diagnosed patients. Now, can you kind of just go back over how exactly it's utilized? And am I correct in saying it's kind of the neurosurgeon who has to kind of think about this up front? That's correct. The medical oncologist really is not involved in that decision. There's some neurosurgeons who really like the gliadel wafers, are very experienced with it, and tend to have a high use of it. There's other neurosurgeons that never use it. It certainly does increase the post-op edema. I think it can increase the wound healing complications. So some neurosurgeons that have had complications from gliadel will never use it and others that know how to use it and know the data, they use it relatively frequently. So I guess, I mean, it's essentially BCNU. Correct. It's BCNU in a polymer wafer. So you get a slow release of the BCNU over four to six weeks. And one of the things about GBMs is they always recur locally. So it does make sense to use a therapy that will treat those residual tumor cells locally. And gliadel is one of them. And I think that's why it did improve the survival. It's interesting, you know, speculating, combining it with something like bevacizumab, maybe he's going to have an anti-edema you know, effect. Like in the trials of upfront temidar radiation and Bev, do they allow gliadel wafers? And what happens when you do that? No, they don't. So patients that receive gliadel are excluded from many clinical trials, including the trials of bevacizumab for newly diagnosed GBM. The concern is that you'd have further problems with wound healing, wound dehiscence, but we're actually trying to get a trial going that looks at patients with newly diagnosed GBM where they get their craniotomy, they have gliadel placed, they follow that with radiation, temozolomide, and bevacizumab, and then temozolomide and bev after. I would think that wound dehiscence and even wound problems would be pretty uncommon, but how common are they? And what about BEV? I think that wound healing is a major concern with BEV in brain tumor patients. And a lot of that, Neil, has to do with the additional complications that most of them are on dexamethasone. So they already have some inhibition of wound healing. And I think it really takes well-controlled clinical trials to understand the extent of it. In our trial of 125 patients with newly diagnosed GBM, we only had one patient 
that had wound dehiscence that had to go back to the OR and had to come off trial. So I think it's relatively uncommon as long as the physicians are smart about caring for that patient. You know, I'm thinking about wound healing with this situation. I mean, the brain itself wouldn't have wound healing or does it? I I guess I would assume it's kind of what, I don't know, the skull or what's actually healing? The skin? I think there's two issues with wound healing. The first one is the brain around the area of the tumor resection. You would worry that with gliadel there, a lot more edema, a lot more capillary leak with the addition of bevacizumab, would they bleed more? And I think we just need trials to determine that. But the major wound healing, wound dehiscence comes from the scalp healing. And because the patients are on high-dose dexamethasone, when if you add bevacizumab too early, then you have a much higher incidence of wound dehiscence. Interesting. I mean, the rule of thumb we've seen in a lot of tumors, including colon, is six to eight weeks. Is that the way you all approach it? Uh, we actually, because we deal with such a bad tumor, we generally use four weeks. Right. The initial bevacizumab radiation trial was done at UCLA, and they used three weeks, and two of their first 10 patients did have wound dehiscence. So I feel a little more comfortable with the four weeks. Jim, where are we right now in terms of novel systemic agents in the treatment of GBM? Neil, it remains a very exciting time in neuro-oncology. The first thing that comes to mind really is the maturity of the data using Avastin for newly diagnosed GBM patients. Both the UCLA and the Duke studies now have median follow-ups exceeding 18 months. So I think the improvements in the survival that we saw are real, and I think we really need to confirm that in the two phase three studies ongoing. The most striking thing for me, though, Neil, actually is the frustration with figuring out a vast in resistance. We've really made a lot of headway understanding glioma biology with VEGF and things like that. But when patients progress to Avastin, it's really frustrating. There's nothing that has really made an impact. And that's why I included that as one of my cases. So, and we'll go through those in a minute, but can you go back and go over the background? I think we kind of went through this in the think tank last summer, but now it's, you know, it's almost a year later in terms of the clinical research data we have on bevacizumab. It was very interesting. When I came to the neuro-oncology field, it struck me that all the trials were investigating different chemotherapies. Glioblastomas are notoriously resistant to chemotherapies. And I did some background work and found out that GBMs have the highest level of vascular endothelial growth factor. So I said, so why haven't we tried bevacizumab? Well, it's because of the risk of CNS hemorrhage. So I waited a few months and more patients died of their malignant glioma. And finally, when we did the trial, it was very clear that the glioma biology predicted that an anti-VEGF therapy would be very effective. And bevacizumab is far and away the most effective therapy we've seen for recurrent GBM. Do we know right now to what extent this is sort of an anti-neoplastic effect on the cells as opposed to edema or stromal effect? 
We have no idea. I think that's close to a Nobel Prize if someone is able to figure that out. The MRIs change dramatically as a result of the tightened capillary junctions and the decreased vascular permeability. As a clinician, though, all I can tell you is the patients improve. So when I'm in the clinic, I don't really care whether it's an anti-edema effect or an anti-tumor effect, but the duration of the responses are significant. So either the anti-edema effect is what feeds these tumors, or there's got to be some anti-tumor effect there. So when you say durations are significant, in what range? Four to six months. And for recurrent GBMs, that's more than twice what would be expected. It's a little scary, actually. It really is. It's a terrible tumor. But if you look back before the bevacizumab trials were published, the response rates were consistently less than 10%, and the six-month progression-free survivals were always less than 20%. We've got that up to 40 45%, but it is a terrible tumor. And yes, we've made a little bit of an impact, but we got a long way to go. Well, maybe you can capsulize the clinical research data on bevacizumab to this point, including the maturation of it, as you described. The primary focus of investigation with bevacizumab was in recurrent glioblastoma multiforme. And initially, we did a trial where we combined bevacizumab with irinotecan, saw a 60% response rate and a 57% six-month progression-free survival. That was followed up with a randomized phase two study that Genentech ran, and that was bevacizumab as a single agent versus the combination of bevacizumab and irinotecan. They did have an outside independent radiology facility review all the MRIs. The response rate in that situation was 25 to 35% in the two arms. The six-month progression-free survival was 45% to 55%. So again, far better than any data. And I was somewhat surprised that a randomized phase two trial led to accelerated FDA approval of bevacizumab. Following the data in recurrent GBMs, both us and UCLA started a study in newly diagnosed GBMs, and that's where the data is really finally maturing. And what do we know about using bevacizumab in that setting? How have the trials studied this? The background of the studies was really just adding it to standard radiation therapy, daily temozolomide, followed by five-day temozolomide with Avastin. So really standard therapy. We also included irinotecan following the radiation, but I don't think the irinotecan really adds too much. And there was about a doubling of the median progression-free survival and about a 50% improvement in the median overall survival. I think a number of people in our field are very cautious about interpreting these data. Some people feel that you improve the time to progression, but you don't really improve the overall survival, hence the need for the two large phase three studies ongoing. Boy, that comes up so often in oncology when you have these agents that, particularly the biologics, you know, maybe not that much toxicity and adding a little bit of benefit. What about side effects and toxicity? Of course, hemorrhage has been the big concern. What do we know about that? The toxicity of bevacizumab has really been minimal. When you 
used to chemotherapy and those side effects and brain tumor patients have a real tough quality of life. It's really a pleasure to have an agent that's so well tolerated. About a third of patients end up with hypertension requiring therapy. About 10% will end up with either DVTs or PEs. But overall, in the grand scheme of things, it's very well tolerated. So in your own practice outside of a protocol setting, how are you using bevacizumab right now? We still do combine bevacizumab with chemotherapy. I don't think that the addition of chemotherapy is going to detract from the efficacy of bevacizumab, and it may add a little bit to the efficacy. Depending upon the patient's prior treatment, we'll determine what chemotherapy we add to the bevacizumab. For those patients who have a decreased performance status or really would like to avoid chemotherapy totally, I'm fine with just using single-agent bevacizumab. Now, what about using it up front with radiation therapy and temozolomide? We really try to do that in the context of a clinical trial. I don't want to find out five years from now that it's a similar story as high-dose chemotherapy with transplant for breast cancer, where the initial data looked promising, everybody jumped on the bandwagon, and then randomized studies showed that there really wasn't that much efficacy to it, and there was significant toxicity. The hard thing is, in America, patients come in demanding bevacizumab when they have a newly diagnosed GBM. It's a long discussion, but fortunately, we usually have clinical trials that we enroll these patients to. So I'm just curious how strongly you feel about it. For example, if a patient comes in very knowledgeable, understands what's going on, is asking for it, there's not a reimbursement issue, maybe their referring doc recommended it. I mean, are you going to kind of put your foot down and say, well, you know, that's fine. If you want somebody else to give it to you, I just don't do that. I will not put my foot down. I feel as a clinician, I am the patient's advocate. So I talk about the pros and cons of including bevacizumab in the initial treatment of a glioblastoma multiforme, the potential risk, the potential for increased invasive disease. I review all the data. And if the patient wants bevacizumab, I certainly will add it. Now, another area that you brought up when I asked you about what's new was sidereniv in terms of new data that's about to come out. Can you review exactly what this agent is and what we know about it? Sidereniv is an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor that's very specific for the different VEGF ligands. Very potent. The preliminary data in brain tumors was very good. I think it's an agent that will provide an alternative to bevacizumab, and I think we need further studies to really determine is one better than the other? Should we sequence them? Can we combine them safely? What other pathways do we need to inhibit? What's been seen, you know, different TKIs and different tumors can cause, you know, skin problems, diarrhea, et cetera. What's been seen with sidereniv? Sidereniv is a pretty clean tyrosine kinase inhibitor, so it really is just the VEGF pathways. So the main problem has been hypertension, and sometimes it's difficult to manage hypertension. If patients stay on sidereniv for many months, then proteinuria will become an issue. So they're really the primary problems. Any sense in terms of how hypertension and proteinuria with sidereniv compares to bevacizumab? I think that if you use the right dose of both agents, I think it's very similar. I think it's a VEGF-specific toxicity. Any sense in terms of, you know, you speculate that maybe sidereniv is going to become available at some time in the near future? If that happens, 
of course, you want to see the data, but, you know, how do you think you'll integrate it in terms of off-protocol therapy compared to bevacizumab? Well, what's fun about being a clinical investigator is it allows for a lot more clinical trials for me because I think it's going to increase the number of very important research questions that we need to ask. I certainly can envision patients that do not want to come in for an every two or three week intravenous infusion. A bevacizumab where an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor would be better. Another situation, if a person is going to undergo surgery for some other reason, you don't want the long half-life of bevacizumab, the short half-life of sidirinib. You can operate on those people within a week of stopping the agents. So there certainly are potential advantages. Any wound healing or thrombotic problems with sidirinib that we know about? I think that it's similar to bevacizumab. There has been some instances of wound dehiscence. You really have to try to avoid other surgeries on these patients. So I'm just thinking back to our think tank again last summer in terms of the things that we talked about and the things that I got my eyes open about before we get to your cases. And the other one that I was remembering, because I never heard of it before, was the whole issue of the, quote, integrins and the agent selingitide. Can you review what we know about that? And again, if anything's happened in the past year that's important to know about in that regard. The integrin pathway is really critical for neovascularization, for invasiveness. Selingitide is a non-toxic inhibitor of the integrin pathway. And there is a large phase three randomized study ongoing right now in newly diagnosed GBM patients of plus or minus selingitide to the backbone of standard temozolomide and radiation. I'm not aware of any early promising data. The data for recurrent glioblastoma multiforme was modest at best, but I think we need the results from the randomized phase three study before making any conclusions. What is exciting, Neil, is actually thinking about combining the integrin inhibitors with the VEGF inhibitors. Now, now that is potentially very synergistic, and we're hoping to get those studies going. Why don't we talk about your patients, beginning with your 43-year-old person with low-grade astrocytoma? The reason I included the low-grade case was it's really very controversial. Low grades are not nearly as common as malignant gliomas, and oncologists always want to treat a patient that they do a consultation on. And I think the most important thing about low-grade tumors is there is no therapy that prolongs the patient's survival. So you really have to focus on quality of life to determine when to treat the patient or when not to treat the patient. So this was a young person that had a resection back two years ago whose tumor progresses. The patient really was asymptomatic. And I saw the patient in consultation the patient actually had a good re-resection, and I told the patient that the patient should be observed, have routine MRIs, and if the patient develops symptoms, then to consider either radiation therapy or temozolomide therapy. When I called the oncologist, he was very upset that I didn't recommend a treatment for the patient. The patient was sent to me to recommend a treatment. And I said, I wish we had a treatment that improved this person's survival. But all the data on low-grade gliomas is that you prolong the time to progression. You can improve symptoms, but you don't prolong the overall survival. So I recommended a watch-and-wait approach, and the patient was delighted with it. 
So now this person and the initial resection was not that long ago, only in 2008. Right. The median time to progression is about three and a half years. So this does make you a little bit worried that this patient has a more aggressive low-grade glioma. I think the MIB-1 labeling index is very helpful in this situation. If it's above 5%, it's going to behave much more aggressively, and sometimes we use that to treat the patient. I think the other important point is that you really need repeat pathology that over 80% of low-grade gliomas will evolve to either an anaplastic glioma grade 3 or into a glioblastoma multiforme. And if you don't have repeat path, you don't know how to treat them. And if once they evolve, then you know you have to start radiation and temozolomide. So what exactly is MIB-1? Did this patient have it measured? And I assume that when the resection of the recurrence occurred, that was still low-grade? Indeed, this patient did have the MIB-1 labeling index done. What the MIB-1 labeling index is, is it's kind of a determinant of the percentage of cells in mitosis. So it's like the KI-67 labeling. This patient's initial MIB-1 labeling was less than 1%, which is very good. That tells you it's a very slow-growing, low-grade glioma. When the patient was re-resected a couple months ago, it was 3%. So it makes you a little more worried, but I always use a cutoff of 5% as that tumor is really starting to evolve to a higher grade glioma. Now, this patient has not had radiation therapy to this point? The patient has not had any therapy besides their two craniotomies, and they're the sort of low-grade patients that I like because I think the downside to radiating these patients at the initial diagnosis is the long-term cognitive dysfunction. And yes, the patient stays in remission for a little bit longer, but then they have to deal with the long-term consequences of high-dose radiation to the brain. So, I mean, I can understand the referring oncologist's concern. you got a person who's had a recurrence, you know, I guess less than two years after first. If that patient asked you, and I don't know, maybe the patient did ask you, Can you give me some numbers about what to expect from the future? How long on average will it be before things get worse? Is there a chance it won't get worse? What kinds of numbers would you give to a patient in this situation? Or would you say to yourself... The natural history of low grades are incredibly variable. But the fact that this patient progressed about two years from their initial diagnosis tells me that their time to progression is going to be even sooner the third time. So yes, I told the patient that it's likely that they'll progress again and evolve to a higher grade glioma, but you have to be honest with them and tell them that you don't have a therapy that can clearly prolong their survival, hence the recommendation to watch and wait. How about your second patient, the 52-year-old? This was an interesting case from last month. There was a 52-year-old patient who presented with a severe headache, was intermittently confused, had to stop work. A CAT scan showed a lesion, an MRI showed a necrotic cystic lesion. Patient underwent a gross total of a newly diagnosed GBM, and they were referred to us for consultation. This was one of those long discussions about the pros and cons of adding bevacizumab in the situation of a newly diagnosed GBM. 
I reviewed standard of care with temozolomide and radiation followed by temozolomide. I reviewed the two ongoing phase three studies, the RTOG 0825, which is a placebo-controlled trial of the addition of bevacizumab, or the Avaglio trial, which is also placebo-controlled. We do have a phase two study where we added topotecan to the backbone, and this patient was adamant that they wanted bevacizumab right from the beginning. They were aware of the data, so the patient actually enrolled on our phase two trial. So this is topotecan plus bevacizumab plus temozolomide plus radiation? And I think I saw an ASCO or I've seen some stuff that you guys put out on that. What do we know about that right now? The phase two trial for newly diagnosed glioblastoma multiformes is actually radiation therapy, daily temozolomide, navastin, and following completion of the radiation, that's when we add oral topotecan to the temozolomide and navastin. What we know is we just completed a phase one trial where I got the doses correct for temozolomide and oral topotecan. Both are given over five days. We stagger so the temozolomide starts and the oral topotecan starts on day two. Very well tolerated. It did not add much to the myelosuppression. In the lab, the addition of oral topotecan is very synergistic with bevacizumab because the topotecan is actually a potent inhibitor of HIF-1-alpha. So that's where we kind of got the initial concept from a few years ago, and I just wanted to make sure that it was tolerable in the clinic, and now we're doing a study. Now, where is this patient right now? The patient is in the middle of their radiation therapy. Tamidar and bevacizumab has not had any complications and is due to start the temozolomide, topotecan, and bevacizumab in about four weeks. Interesting. How about your 38-year-old? The last case is really the bane of a neuro-oncologist's existence. So this is a 38-year-old patient who had a very good prolonged response to a bevacizumab-containing regimen who subsequently progressed, responded to a different chemotherapy in bevacizumab for a very short period of time, and now has progressed again. So really, it's a bevacizumab failure. How do you treat this patient? There are a number of these patients that have adequate performance status, reasonable quality of life, that we really need new therapies to understand bevacizumab resistance. A lot of these patients are excluded from clinical trials. A lot of the companies don't want bevacizumab failures because they do so poorly. Our dilemma in the clinic is we need agents that are effective for bevacizumab failures. So we're really caught in this quandary. And this is one of the few patients that actually I combined imatinib, hydroxyurea, and bevacizumab, so inhibiting both PDGF and VEGF, and the patient had a marked improvement. It's not a common scenario, but I'd say about one in five will really benefit from the dual inhibition of both VEGF and PDGF. Now, this is off-study? This was off-study. I'm trying to get somebody interested in a study of inhibiting VEGF and PDGF, but have not been successful so far. So how long has the patient been on treatment? Six months. Hmm. And actually, I guess this patient is now more than three years since diagnosis. I guess that's pretty unusual. It is unusual, but we're seeing a lot more of these patients because of bevacizumab's activity in recurrent GBM. 
You know, the median time to progression is in the four to five months range, but we're seeing a lot of people who benefit for more than a year. In our initial trial of irinotecan and bevacizumab, the four-year survival is 15%. And four years for a recurrent GBM is really unheard of. So I think we're seeing a lot more of these patients. Anything that we haven't talked about today in the field that, you know, something that comes up when you give lectures or you chat with people that we should cover? I think one of the things that people are concerned about is do VEGF inhibitors increase tumor invasiveness? All of us that treat GBMs, a large number of GBMs, have seen patients that receive a VEGF inhibitor and their tumor just explodes in a very atypical fashion, either multifocal progression, leptomeningeal disease. We've had a number of patients that they progress around the fourth ventricle and their tumor was in the cortex. And you say, how the heck does this happen? I think it's a small percentage of patients in the range of 10%. But again, I think if we can understand what pathways are mediating that increased invasiveness, then it will lead to new therapies for recurrent GBMs. Last thing I want to ask you about is I recall your comments last summer about the issue of supportive care of these patients. And, you know, we all try to get excited about all the research and all, but certainly this is a very, very difficult disease for the patient and family. Anything new in terms of your own practice over this past year in terms of supportive and palliative care of these patients? I'm glad you asked, Neil. I think that's a real important point. With the use of the VEGF inhibitors, these patients are able to taper off their dexamethasone very rapidly. And I think one of the terrible issues with malignant glioma patients is the chronic steroids or the high-dose steroids, the steroid myopathy, the depression. These patients really have a terrible quality of life. And if you're cognizant that when they're on a VEGF inhibitor or doing well, you really need to try to taper them off their dexamethasone. I think that's made a very large improvement. The other thing that I've seen is that the neurostimulants or the psychostimulants can really help a number of these patients. I think from the trauma of surgery and the high-dose radiation therapy that's used, the reticular activating system down-regulates, and these people are very sluggish. And once you give them methylphenidate or provigil, one of the amphetamine derivatives, they're back to normal. So I do think there's a lot of improvements that can be made in these patients' quality of life. 